Welcome to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, where we talk about issues facing our big island community. Island Conversations, Sunday mornings on KWXX at 6.30 and on B97B93 at 7 a.m. Or listen anytime at kwxx.com. Island Conversations, brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916. Now, here's your host and producer, Sherry Bracken. Aloha, good morning, welcome to Island Conversations. Sundays, we're on the radio on the big island of Hawaii on KWXX and B93B97, and on KPUA the following Friday. And you may always listen to Island Conversations wherever you get podcasts or online at kwxx.com or b97hawaii.com. Captain Gregory Esteban joined the Hawaii County Police Department in June 1985, and so he's got about 35 years with the department. He was promoted to lieutenant and assigned first to South Hilo Patrol. Captain Esteban is currently the commander of the Area 1 Criminal Investigation Division in Hilo. And by the way, he went to the FBI National Academy in Quantico, Virginia, which is a really premier training program for law enforcement professionals. The reason I wanted to talk with Captain Esteban is that I thought it would be a very interesting conversation because his specialty is homicide. Captain Esteban was recently appointed to a two-year term as the president of the International Homicide Investigators Association. This is an organization that is 20 years old. They have over 2,600 members from all over the country and all over the world. And Captain Esteban is the department's death and homicide investigation instructor for police recruits and also for newly promoted detectives and sergeants. And he's also brought classes here to the Big Island and to the state from the International Homicide Investigators Association. Captain Esteban, aloha, good morning. Aloha, good morning, Sherry. So thank you so much for being with us. I really do find the concept of homicide investigations to be interesting. And I'm curious, you're born and raised in Hilo, you went to Hilo High. Did you always want to be a police officer, or what prompted you or informed you to make that decision to join Hawaii County Police? You know, Sherry, that was not a lifelong dream. I have an older brother. He was a police officer, but that was never my ambition. I went to college. I was taking liberal arts, and then I get a call. I get a call from the training lieutenant saying, you're hired for the next recruit class. Had you applied? Yes, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I did apply. Yes, I happened to apply. One of the class members was Paul Kealoha. Oh, really? It was a great time. I actually was living with him and his brother Perry. We were renting a house above Konawana High School. Paul and I actually worked on the same shift. Same days off. We had a great time together. Yeah. I eventually transferred back to Hilo. So for those of you who don't know Paul Kealoha, he eventually became the assistant chief for West Hawaii. Captain Esteban, at this point, your focus really is on homicides. And I know you've had a lot of different opportunities during your police career. Was this focus on homicides sort of a natural outgrowth of what you did in all the different job assignments? Or were you always interested in homicides? Like, were you watching police shows when you were a kid or something? Well, maybe the only show I'd be watching is Hawaii Five-0, but, but there's a real Hawaii Five-0 when you had Jack Lord back then. As a patrolman starting out in 85, I had absolutely no ambition to be the investigator. But some of my friends were detectives, and hearing some of the stories kind of intrigued me. Some of the cases that they worked, the challenges that they faced, and I was thinking, okay, this is, this is something that I enjoy if given the opportunity. When I got promoted to detective, you just jump in the hot seat. 
you develop a method of managing your case files because uh, you got to prioritize the cases, look at the cases, uh, identify the solvabilities of each case. But the thing is that I enjoyed those complex cases because that's what challenges your, your abilities and that's how you become a better detective. You are essentially the homicide expert for Hawaii County Police. Well, you're shaking your head. I'm no. not an expert. I'm, let, me, let me clear that. I'm, I'm not an expert. I'm experienced as a homicide investigator, as a commander for a team of detectives that worked homicides. Our investigative section does not have a dedicated homicide unit. We develop our detectives' experience through giving them these complex cases on a rotational basis. And a lot of them develop excellent investigative skills by investigating homicides. Well, I'm sure that work, like almost any work, gets better with practice. So the more that you investigate, the better you are at investigating. Absolutely. And along with investigating homicides, developing your interrogation skills, your ability to recognize certain signs, behaviors of individuals. As a police officer, you tend to take notice of things that other people don't see. You see behaviors, you see gestures that raises your awareness. Even though you say you're not a homicide expert, you are the one who trains new recruits and a lot of the other officers in the department and the current homicide investigative techniques. You are in Hilo, Area 1. Do you get involved with all homicides on the island or just the ones in East Hawaii? We also assist Area 2 with investigations because we have additional resources that we can deploy island-wide. Give us a sense, Captain Esteban, of how many homicides our island typically has. That's a crime that is a scary crime, but as I look at it, Statistically, we don't seem to have that many, but why don't you tell us what we have? How many homicides do we have every year? You're correct in saying that, Sherry. The island of Hawaii is a very safe place. On average, we have anywhere from three to five homicides per year. That does not include the attempted murder cases. We have anywhere from um, maybe eight to ten attempt murder cases. Wow, that's more than I would have thought. Yeah. If somebody, for example shoot someone, and the person doesn't die, obviously. <laughs> yeah, we have an attempted murder case. They're not easy to solve, but they're easier to solve because of the fact that the victim can identify the suspect. We did have a one-year period, December 2012 to 2013. In Area 1, we investigated a total of 11 homicides. Wow, that is a spike. What was going on? I can't say what common denominator was because a lot of the, all these cases were independent. But some involved, we believe, was drug activity. Some involved domestic violence. It was an unusual period in Area 1. Everyone was tied up with either one or two investigations. We had a total back then, I think it was um, 10 detectives in the criminal investigation section. Now I was a section commander. And everyone was tied up. It was trying to jump from case to case to case, following up on leads. The great thing was that everybody was able to assist each other in working each case to its conclusion. Each case was resolved. Some cases may have been adjudicated already, but some cases remain uncharged. My sense is from, I won't just say watching police shows on TV where they always say, it's the wife, it's the husband. But my sense is that most homicides, rather than being random stranger homicides, are homicides by somebody who is a known person to the victim. Am I correct in that? Or do we have a lot of just randomly, I'm walking down the street and somebody murders me? The majority of the homicides include an association between the victim and the suspect. It's rare for a random victim 
to be killed, but we did have a few of those. And those cases were resolved as well. Sometimes we just got to look at it in a different perspective. We got to look at the victimology of our deceased person, look at the accessibility that the suspect had to the victim. A lot of these factors come into play when trying to resolve either an associated homicide or a homicide with there's no association between victim or suspect. You mentioned domestic violence, and I know that County Prosecutor Mitch Roth and I have spoken of that where he feels concerned that domestic violence oftentimes can erupt into a homicide. And he specifically talked about cases where you might have, and it's usually a man who, as part of being violent, chokes a woman, doesn't kill her, but that seems to be a precursor. Just talk about domestic violence and the concept of homicide. I mean, how often is that happening? And is that kind of your first look when a person who has a boyfriend or girlfriend is killed? You know, give us a sense of that. Domestic violence-related homicides are typically, you know, again, you mentioned the precursors. There's likely a, a historical background between both parties. And usually the female victim, or even a male victim for that matter, has prior interaction with law enforcement, oftentimes documented in our records management system. It is rare to have a male victim. Often when we have domestic-related homicides, the ones that I'm familiar with, there's at least Two, that involve multiple victims killed at the hands of the, well, allegedly killed at the hands of the uh, assailant using a firearm. When you say allegedly, I take it this is a case that has not yet been completely adjudicated? There is one case that remains unadjudicated. And I mentioned that case about the rarity of a male victim. That was a unique case. This case was a homicide. The victim was shot with a firearm by a female estranged ex-wife, and she is serving time for that Going back to strangulation, there's been scientific studies that have shown that in addition to strangulation or attempted strangulation, impeding breathing, there's also a dynamic that involves injuring animals. And there's also a study that includes that those individuals who have perpetrated those dynamics. Meaning harming animals? Harming animals, uh, strangling their companions or wives. There's a study that has shown that there's also a high propensity for violence towards law enforcement officers. Really? Yeah. Well, so that would be doubly concerning. Yes. I mean, your job is to protect the citizens, but your job is also to protect yourselves. Absolutely. Yeah, interesting. I know that you don't want to talk about any ongoing cases, and this is not a Hawaii County case, but if you look at the case in Honolulu where the man was living with the woman and then there were numerous complaints because he was a little bit crazy, it seemed, and then two police officers came to a call and he shot them and burned the house down. There had been numerous police calls in advance of that. I mean, that in itself is... um it's heartbreaking. When I first heard of those two officers that were shot and killed, it is heartbreaking, no matter whether they're law enforcement from our department, another department in Hawaii or on the mainland, it still strikes at the heart that one of our fallen officers you know, gave the ultimate sacrifice. Well, that was certainly true. And our own Bronson Kaliloa, our officer who was shot by the criminal in Puna, That was bad for the whole island. I mean, whether you were a police officer or just a citizen, I mean, we all felt that. He was one of our own. That still stings. I was working when Osakili Ipio died. I worked with Shigiji Chaku. Really? These are two of those who are mentioned on the plaque in Hilo as deceased police officers. Killed in the line of duty. Killed in the line of duty. Yeah. It is heartbreaking to see that. 
you know, they teach our officers being safe on the road. But there's so many outside influences, which includes drug issues, even potentially domestic violence issues, mental health issues that come into play. And no matter how well an officer can prepare him or herself, there's always those individuals who are heart set on harming one of our officers. So going back to the domestic violence cases, that continues to be at the forefront because of the fact that oftentimes it impacts the children as well. The peripheral family members, friends, and likely when we interview them, we'll often hear, yeah, I know, yeah, he was beating her up or beating the kids up, but why didn't you say anything? Why didn't you call the police? Through public awareness, it's something that the prosecutor's office, the uh, the victim's assistance counselors, and even law enforcement can better prepare as far as awareness and recognition and reporting to law enforcement. Captain Esteban, one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you is that you are now the president of the International Homicide Investigators Association. And first of all, I'm impressed that your chiefs, first of all, Chief Harry Kubo-Jerry and now Chief Paul Ferreira, support that activity because clearly that's something that takes you a bit away from doing your everyday Hawaii County police work. But I am guessing that they see that that involvement is beneficial to our department. So tell us what your work with the International Homicide Investigators Association, how does that help us in Hawaii County, or how does that help Hawaii County Police? In addition to having our detectives, our investigative commanders, even our division commanders attend annual symposiums, we also are able to bring homicide training to Hawaii. And we've done so on two occasions so far, and we're working on bringing additional training to Hawaii. In fact, we have a course that's going to be held in Quantico, Virginia, at the FBI Academy, a place that I called home for 10 weeks. That is a uh, cold case, nobody homicide investigation prosecution course. That course is going to debut in Quantico, Virginia, at the FBI Academy. And that was done because of the fact that we have a strong partnership with the FBI. We have an FBI liaison sitting on our board. They've been instrumental in providing us with the um, resources and being part of a working group in order to develop this course. So this course is something that we are working on bringing to Honolulu. So I'm in communication with agents with NCIS on Oahu. We're hoping that this issue with the coronavirus doesn't impact Well, when you talk about a homicide course that is, quote, no body, obviously that means you believe someone's been murdered, but there is not a body. And I remember some cases here on the Big Island where it appeared that was the case. I don't know if you can speak to any of those, but I know on Maui not long ago they had one, the girl, Charlie Scott, who was murdered and her, I hate to use the term boyfriend because it's not much of a boyfriend, but he was convicted and there was not a body. So in the case of a suspected homicide with no body, what do you do? What, what are the investigative techniques that would be employed? Well, again, we look at the victimology, historical data, which includes records management systems, protective orders, family court matters that were addressed, and also talking to um, associates of the victim. Video surveillance, video footage from home surveillance, from businesses. We've all heard about those cases where you have a suspect, a male person, carrying a duffel bag or a garbage bag, or two or three of them, and toss him in his back of his pickup truck and leaving, and coming back maybe five or six hours later on, and there's nothing in his back of his pickup truck. And his spouse is missing? Yes. And the thing is that 
one telltale sign is that the victim, whether it be female or male, is missing. And who reports the person missing is critical to the case, too. Interesting. Now, I don't know in the Charlie Scott case, was it her boyfriend who reported her missing? I'm not sure, but in that particular case, you know, I don't know the specific details, but no body was recovered. But they were fortunate enough to recover tissue and, I believe, some teeth. So in order to find that kind of thing, I know that there exist dogs who are quite instrumental. Do we have such a dog available to us? We're in the process of acquiring a replacement cadaver dog. We do have a live find canine. That canine has been used in search of missing people. And just a short break to remind you, this is Island Conversations. I'm Sherry Bracken. Today we're talking with Hawaii County Police Captain Greg Esteban, who is the county police department's leading homicide investigator and trainer. All of our Island Conversation podcasts are available wherever you get podcasts or at kwxx.com or b97hawaii.com. And if you're on the big island of Hawaii, you may listen to Island Conversations on the radio on Sunday morning on KWXX. WXX and B97B93, and the following Friday on KPUA 670 AM in Hilo. We'll get back to Captain Greg Esteban after we hear from our very much appreciated sponsor, KTA Superstores. At KTA, local and fresh means you get the very best Hawaii Island has to offer. The grass-fed meats you find at KTA are raised without added hormones or antibiotics. Our seafood department is stocked with sustainable choices caught in local waters by local fishermen. KTA carries the largest selection of Hawaii Island homegrown produce. Our mountain apple brand is all local. Local, so you know it's fresh and delicious. Local and fresh always tastes best at KTA. Do you, Captain Esteban, have specific interrogation techniques that you verse your team in, your detectives, your commanders? Are there interrogation techniques that you have learned either at the FBI Academy or through your work with the International Homicide Investigators Association? Talk a little bit about that because it would seem like there are probably procedures or protocols that somebody like you would follow to speak to a potential suspect? Sure. There is interview interrogation courses that are available. We do have those courses where we bring the instructor down from the mainland to our department. In fact, we have one coming up in the coming months, and that's going to be in Kona. So we're going to get as much investigative personnel as well as up-and-coming patrol officers who demonstrate a potential for advancement to attend that class. Now, I've attended the class years ago when I was a detective, and what matters is when you go to the training, you actually apply those skills that you've learned through the training. You've got to do your homework. An investigator has to do their homework in preparation for an interrogation. I mean, you're not going in there to just talk sorry with a guy or gal. The thing is that you're trying to extract information that is critical to the investigation, that either corroborates your investigation, or if the person denies it, then you can find evidence to either corroborate that denial or confirm that the person was not involved. Again, doing the homework, knowing the case, is imperative to know your case, your evidence, your scene. And it's equally more important to know your suspect that you're going to be engaging with with the expectation of him potentially giving you an admission. If he gives you bits and pieces of information that you believe is accurate to the investigation, then you know when you're on the right track. Then you gotta pursue, pursue that line of questioning until you're able to extract 
all the necessary information to corroborate your investigation. And through the, through the um, investigative process, we use different techniques to either include or exclude a suspect through development of the investigation. Some of the processes we use to exclude individuals is DNA analysis and polygraph exams. Is it true that polygraph exams are not admissible in court, as one hears on police shows? Absolutely. They're, they're, not, they're not admissible in court, but it's an excellent investigative tool. Meaning if I take one and I fail, it's really hard to sit there and look you in the eye and pretend like I'm not lying? Well, <laughs> well the thing is that, you know, if you call someone a liar, how receptive is that person going to be to providing you any more information? So you got to dance around that. I mean, there's a skill, there's a technique, and, and it's something that I used to love doing. I no longer do it. I mean, I, I can't even interrogate my cats anymore. But it's, <laughs> Wait a minute, you're the homicide guy. <laughs> no, but it's, it's, it's a skill that some of the detectives slowly are developing their own niche, their own abilities, using the same tried-and-true concepts. We're confident that by attending a, an official interview interrogation class, it only enhanced their skills. When you interrogate somebody who you firmly believe is a serious homicide suspect, is it typically as a team or as a solo? And if it's a team, do you do good cop, bad cop, or is that just a myth? That is not a myth, yeah. I've been both a good cop and a bad cop. And it depends on the information that you get on the suspect. When I was interrogating people, I had a tendency to roll on my own. That way, you have better control, I feel. But you also have any uh, good cop, bad cop concept that works as well. That is proven to work as well. So it's just a matter of when to apply a team effort or going at it solo. You mentioned DNA, and we've heard a lot recently about DNA. I know that DNA testing has been around for quite a while. I'll use quite a while. I don't know how many years. But fairly recently, there was a pretty well-publicized case in California where they caught the Golden State Killer, who was a serial killer and rapist, and had been doing that for decades. And they caught him by using familial DNA. They actually took DNA from a crime scene and were able to go to a public DNA database of some kind, get family members, and then narrow it down to him. So that specific kind of technique, is that something that Hawaii County is able to use, has used, plans to use? Talk more about that. Well, it all depends on the lab. Our crime lab does not perform any biological or DNA analysis. Okay, so we do have a crime lab. What do they do if they uh, don't do DNA? Our crime lab in Hilo analyzes drugs, and they're pretty good at it. Unfortunately, we have some drugs recovered that need to be tested prior to a charging decision, and they also perform photography, fingerprint analysis, recovering fingerprints from items. If there's a fingerprint that needs to be identified, we'll send that over to our identification section. So let's get back to the DNA. Okay, so in the GSK case, what was unique is that they used the database that's open to the public. The genealogist that went through all that data is mind-boggling. I mean, the time spent is mind-boggling and so intriguing. And I listened to that presentation you get lost in it because there's so much levels that you got to go as far as the family tree. They eventually linked him to that case using genetic genealogy. So did you actually hear that genealogist talk? The Golden State Killer case originated out of Sacramento. Paul Holes, he was in law enforcement at one time, then he went to the prosecutor's office, and he started doing genealogical work. The time that he spent, the time that he spent in trying to resolve that case, looking at the genealogy, was incredible. 
Paul Hose and his team presented at our symposium in Las Vegas, NCIS held a cold case conference in Hawaii in 2019. I was able to bring them over to present at the conference as well. And I'm still lost. It's just simply amazing to hear how the levels, the steps that they took to eventually find the match. Which is wonderful. Even though it's way after the fact, it has to give those victims of rapes and those families of the murder victims some amount of closure. And just a brief interjection, Captain Greg Esteban and I recorded our interview in March. Just about two weeks ago, on June 29th, Joseph James D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer, pleaded guilty to the 13 murders with which he was charged. Now back to the rest of our discussion. Captain Esteban, you've mentioned cold cases. I have been impressed that in the last four, five, six years, Hawaii County Police and Hawaii County Prosecutors have really gone after some cold cases that are quite well known. What is it that, I will use the term, incense Hawaii County Police to look at a cold case again? I know it's a joint activity between the prosecutor's office and the police, but tell us a little bit about the process. Maybe you should define cold case for us. Okay. Well, cold case was a term coined by the media years ago. And it sometimes gives a family a negative impression if you tell them that case is a cold case, simply because it has these negative connotations and saying, oh, okay, there's nothing else to do, so the case is going to be shelved. So the term that is more often used now, they're trying to transition to that is unsolved cases, unsolved murders. May it be unsolved cases include unsolved sex assaults, any unsolved violent crimes. That gives the not only the family some, some hope that there's some activity in the case, but it also gives the investigator some time to say, okay, let's, let's, let's look at a case. Let's look at a case and see what kind of solvability factors exist. When I was a detective, you were assigned maybe two or three unsolved cases. That became problematic because then you were assigned your customary in-custody cases, you were assigned your additional pending cases. So there's often times where it is difficult to work those unsolved cases. So it's evolved to a lot of the agencies now have identified seasoned, experienced detectives who can use their experience, their knowledge, their resources, their analytical abilities to look at cases, to give a different set of eyes to cases. Our department, we have unsolved cases on both sides of the island. Any idea how many? I believe there's seven or eight active unsolved cases that are being reviewed. How old would these typically be? There was one case back in the 70s. That case, ironically enough, was recently referred to the prosecutor's office. Good work. And so I give kudos to our lone unsolved guy, uh, Detective Derek Morimoto. He's a rock star in my eyes. He's been a detective for a number of years. As a patrol officer, he did excellent work. And when he got promoted, he was a sergeant in the dispatch, and maybe that didn't intrigue him enough or didn't challenge him enough. And he volunteered. He'd take a volunteer transfer to investigations. I think from January of 2016, I was the uh, CS lieutenant and wanted to capitalize on his abilities. And so I checked with my bosses and said, I think we need to put some effort into it, uh, some dedicated effort into trying to resolve some of these cases. And so he was given a green light, and he's been doing that ever since. He's made some excellent progress. Like everything else, he encounters challenges with evidence. Sometimes evidence is not preserved well. But we use that as a training tool in order to tell the officers and future detectives, let's uh, be careful on how we preserve and package evidence in the event that this case may go unsolved for some time. 
There's some cases that I worked as a detective that Detective Morimoto continues to work on. He's a soldier. He's a soldier that breaks down each case. He breaks down the evidence, and he has used our forensic labs. He has a direct line to those guys. And if there's a need, we identify the need, identify the evidence, and with hopefully the expectation of what kind of results to get, we send evidence out for additional analysis. Well, you mentioned that we in Hilo do have a crime lab, but we do not have a forensic lab. Is that correct? That's correct. So where are the forensic labs? The scientific investigation section, which is the crime lab for Honolulu Police Department, their area of responsibility includes all four counties as well as law enforcement agencies in the Pacific region. That's a lot of agencies. They have a lot of work, and they've done some incredible work for us. Although they prioritize their own cases, if the need arises, if we have a hot case, a hot homicide that needs some analysis with some immediacy, all we've got to do is call them. And they've been fantastic about that. So you're saying that uh, Sergeant Morimoto, that's his job, is trying to get these cold cases to fruition, yeah? He's trying to identify leads, may it be through re-interviews of individuals, revisiting scenes, reviewing Photographs, old crime scene photographs. And back then, everything was in uh, 35 millimeter, either color negative and black and white. And so he's been able to scan those photos and digitize them. So at least he has a working copy of them. And oftentimes, if there's a need, then we can get an expert to interpret, say, blood spatter or uh, other scene patterns that we need a better understanding of. Well, it sounds like, even though we kind of consider ourselves just a little teeny island in the Pacific, that Hawaii County Police Department really is able to use some of the most current investigative techniques. You mentioned get experts to do crime scene analysis, to do blood spatter analysis. We have access to forensic labs. There are other tools that are used these days, such as the ability to look at electronics, computers, cell phones, track my activities on GPS to see if I was where the murder was committed, when it was committed. Does Hawaii County Police Department use those kinds of tools? Sure. Without releasing too much information, we have done that for some active cases. The FBI has all these areas of expertise for digital evidence. We use CAST, which is CAST is C-A-S-T, which is a cellular analysis survey team. They have the expertise to analyze cell tower data. They're able to identify locations or, I don't know if you can say track, but show a path, so to speak, of where the device moves along a certain highway or certain location. It is pretty accurate given the amount of cell towers you have available to you. Hawaii County, a little bit challenging. We don't have that much cell towers as opposed to the larger municipalities. I've seen some of the analysis that they've done, and we try to verify or corroborate the suspect statements. In addition to that, they also have the computer forensics team, and they're able to extract and recover digital data, even deleted data, from hard drives or even any peripherals that have a memory module. They're able to extract data from that too, which can, we can use as an investigative resource. Do you need to get a warrant before you use such data? Absolutely, absolutely. Any problem in doing so? No, no. It, it, that's, that's become a norm on investigative practices. We do not want to risk any chance of having evidence, maybe digital evidence, maybe physical evidence, biological evidence, 
we don't want to have any chance of not being admitted in court. You mentioned the ability to track movements via GPS, and I know I've read about cases, even I think the Charlie Scott case on Maui, where that was quite instrumental in proving that the perpetrator was maybe not where he said he was at the time. But for anybody who uses Google Maps, Google Maps will tell me if there's a blockage. It'll tell me how long it's going to take to get to my destination. It's really pretty specific, and it does that, I know, by using everybody's GPS data to say, well, the car in front of you, it took them 20 minutes to get there, not the usual 10 that it normally would take. So there's a lot of data out there that is pretty much in the public domain. You need to get warrants, but the information is really there. It's not like rocket science these no. days. Or it is rocket science, but that's it's everywhere. Well, yeah, but the thing is, if you're using it for investigative purposes, uh, again, you want to make sure that whatever you recover for the case is usable in court. And now those websites are starting to require court orders if you're going to be using it for an official police investigation. And that's how the trend normally is. And one thing that, that we need to understand, too, is that the courts and the judges need to be updated on current technology. Now, that's an interesting point. How are the courts and the judges updated, or are they? They often have meetings, conferences, where the prosecutors get involved, which is a great thing because that way both agencies are able to have a better understanding of what the current technology is, whether the testimony is admissible, the expertise used, how that expertise was developed. But even like when they first started with digital photography, that was a big transition because there's software out there that you can enhance photos, alter photos. And there's also photos out there all the time on Facebook and Instagram and wherever. There's not as much privacy. Let me say there's no privacy in the world these days. Right. Captain Esteban, you've talked about a lot of what I will say are new techniques. How much of the work of the homicide investigator still goes back to what I would call good old-fashioned police work? the interviewing, the talking, the following the procedures, because I, I know it would be very comfortable to rely only on DNA, which isn't always available, but talk about that. Well, like anything else, you develop a niche and skill set, actually, on how you investigate a case. And if your primary focus is using forensic evidence as something that there's an expectation that you're going to use it to convict somebody, you're going to have some problems. What we encourage, it's fundamental police work, What's needed is going out there and talking to people and getting information that you can either include, um, validate in your investigative documentation. And what's important is that we need documentation. Everything needs to be documented because the old adage is that if it's not documented, it didn't happen. So this is all in preparation for trial, maybe five years, 10 years down the line. So you've got to have accurate documentation. Particularly because you may not be the one there in five or ten years whenever it does come to trial. Oh, you may be retired. Then the only thing that you have to rely on is one-page report. Yeah, that's going to be a little bit problematic. There's methodologies used to thoroughly investigate and accurately document any criminal investigation. But you've got to up your game if it comes a violent crime, any type of complex case. A lot of times, you got to go out there and make sure that all your bases are covered. Because if your suspect tells you something, you got to find corroborating evidence to support that. If you just rely on the evidence and you don't follow up on anything else, what good is that admission? Again, police work is not tough. It's not hard work. you got to enjoy. you got to enjoy helping a victim, whether the victim is here or not. And so when I give recruit training to these brand new recruits, I ask them generally, why did you join the police department? And everybody says, oh, I want to do good for the community. 
I want to help people out. That has to stay with you. That mindset has to stay with you for your entire career. We can't forget that. Captain Greg Esteban, before we say aloha, is there anything I have not asked you that you want to add? I'm nearing the end of my career. I'll be retiring soon. But before I do that, I want to make sure that I can share as much as information, my knowledge, whatever I have available to the guys and gals who want it. I do want to send kudos to the people who have made this happen. Being part of a great association, Chief Harry Kobajiri and Chief Paul Ferreira allowed me to do that. So I just want to send mahalos to them. Very good. Thank you so much, Captain Greg Esteban. Aloha. Aloha. And to you, our listeners, thank you so much for being with us. This is Island Conversations. I'm Sherry Bracken. Until next time, please, let's all live and drive with aloha. Ahoi ho. Thank you for listening to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, available anytime at kwxx.com. We welcome your feedback and suggestions at info at kwxx.com. Join us next week for another Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916.